My name is Alex Williams, founder of The New Stack, and you're listening to The New Stack Analyst Podcast, a show about application, development, and management at scale. Thanks for joining us. KubeCon, Cloud NativeCon conferences gather adopters and technologists to further the education and advancement of cloud native computing. The vendor-neutral events feature domain experts and key maintainers behind popular projects like Kubernetes, Prometheus, Envoy, CoreDNS, ContainerD, and more. Hello, everyone. Back again with the New Stack Analyst End User Series with my co-host, Cheryl Hung. How are you, Cheryl? Hey, Alex. I'm great, thanks. And it's great to be back on the new stack. Yeah, we did a previous series with end users, and so we decided to try it again. So we have a new co-host today in Dave Zalutsky, Senior Staff Engineer at Spotify. Hi, Dave. Hey, Alex. I'm happy to be here. Ken Owens was awesome, so no pressure. I, I will do my best to fill those uh, difficult-to-fill shoes. Yeah, well, uh, it was it was a, some interesting discussions we had uh, with you know various folks, including we had a discussion with Spotify. But today we are with Ricardo Roca, who is a staff member at CERN. Hello, Ricardo. Hello, happy to be here. Great to have you here. Now, our focus for our discussion today is the new accelerators at CERN and the new requirements. For people out there who may not understand what this new accelerator is, perhaps you can explain it to us. Yeah, sure. So, well, I guess everyone is aware of uh, CERN. Um, So we are the European Organization for uh, Nuclear Research. And uh, our mission is to do fundamental research and to answer big questions about nature and the universe. Uh, We do this by building very large scientific machines. The biggest one we have today is the Large Hadron Collider, which you probably heard back in 2012 with the discovery of the Higgs boson. In these machines, we accelerate, uh, in this specific one, we accelerate protons to very close to the speed of light, high energies, and we make them collide. Uh, These collisions are then recorded in something that is very similar to what a camera would do. And this is the amount of data we we have to store. So if uh, we start looking at the numbers, uh, we are currently with the current machine, which is uh, 27 kilometers in circumference. Uh, The the different detectors are able to generate uh, something like one petabyte a second. This is not something we can store. So we reduce that very quickly to a couple of tens of gigabytes per second, which brings us to uh, around 70 petabytes we have to store. Uh, every year and and process as well. Uh, so it's a significant amount of data. Now, if we look, as Alex was saying, uh, to the near future, in just a couple of years, we'll have an upgrade of this uh, machine. We call it the high luminosity LHC. And the reason we call it high luminosity is just because we, we generate more data, uh, in, in fact, 10 times more data. So the challenge we have today is to make sure that uh, we can evolve our infrastructure and our systems to be able to process this uh, increase in the amount of data with the same amount of resources, pretty much. Well, good. So this new accelerator is much larger in terms of, you know, its circumference, isn't it? And and that then will mean that it will be able to process more data. Maybe there's not a direct correlation. Maybe I'm making it too simple. Um, but 
uh, right now, I think I read that you um, now uh, generate more than 300 petabytes of data uh, when right. you're using the, the technology. What is the anticipated uh, level of data that you'll be using with the new uh, accelerator? And what's the time frame for that? Right. So in, in fact, the accelerator that is coming in just uh, like a few years in the middle of the, this decade or a bit towards the end, uh, it's the same uh, if, uh, tunnel, so it's still 27 kilometers, but it's an upgraded uh, infrastructure okay. that will allow us to to increase uh, this luminosity uh, and generate 10 times more data. So we currently generate 70 petabytes. We have stored over the years uh, more than half an exabyte of data, so more than 500 petabytes. Uh, we expect the new uh, accelerator to to generate 10 times that amount of data. So it's a significant uh, improvement. What would you we call have, that? 5,000 petabytes? Or is there another term you use? Yeah, exabytes. So it's uh, right now we have just over half an exabyte and we'll definitely be crossing the exabyte uh, scale okay. very soon. Uh, we do have like longer term proposals for new accelerators. Maybe that's uh, what you saw as well, which is uh, called the f uh, Future Circular Collider. But this is uh, these projects are always like decades uh, prepared decades in advance. So this will come, uh, and uh, yeah, it will be exciting to see what we will be using uh, when this comes to 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 exist. But for now, we we focus on this new uh, uh, high luminosity LHC. Cheryl, I'm going to turn it to you. What do you think about about all this? this is a lot of data. It is a lot of data. 500 petabytes and 10x from there is is pretty intense. So I storage is very close to my heart. Um, I used to work in a storage company. So Ricardo, what kind of issues do you foresee with this kind of 10x of data storage? And what are you looking forward to in the future? What issues do you know that you need to resolve? Yeah, so... Uh... The data systems we have, there are two parts. One is what we call the triggers that are very close to the detectors where we need to filter uh, the data. Uh, traditionally, this has been do done by hardware. And this is an exciting area as there's, there's uh, some work being done to replace a large fraction of these uh, trigger farms uh, with, uh, with pure software-based uh, triggers and filtering. Uh, this is what allows us to to do very quick selection of uh, what's being generated at the the, the detector, so that we can uh, keep only the interesting parts. And this is what allows us to scale the amount of data we are uh, storing to the capacity we have. So I think the one of the big challenges is is this uh, this evolution of the systems and. Uh, from from the look of things today, it seems like uh, um, accelerators. Uh, uh, like GPUs will play a, a big role in this. Uh, there's also people doing a lot of machine learning uh, in this area. Then on the storage side, um, there's uh, um, the, the systems we have will probably be able to scale uh, just uh, by adding uh, more capacity. Uh, what, what is important here is to follow the systems that will allow us to automate uh, this infrastructure enough to, to be able to scale to 10, 10 times. Uh, there will definitely be like uh, storage breakthroughs also coming uh, that will allow us to, to store uh, more data in the same amount of uh, uh, space. Uh, we, we have our own data centers, so, so we have to scale there as well. 
I think, yeah, that there's these two areas. One is is being able to filter the data so that we store as much of the interesting data as possible. The other one is to scale the infrastructure itself. Am I right, Ricardo, that you use Ceph at CERN? Yeah, so we use Ceph as the storage uh, backend for for the cloud infrastructure. So this means uh, we use it, uh, actually, we use it uh, for volume, for block storage. Uh, we use it also as shared file systems uh, with CephFS. And we also use it as the backend for our internal S3 uh, endpoint. Uh, we do not store the physics data uh, in Ceph uh, today. Uh, we, we have our, our own um, internal storage system for this, but we, we do have a lot of data being stored in Ceph from, from the cloud deployments. Great. Um, that's really interesting. And I'm going to hand it over to Dave, but first I want to introduce Dave a little bit more because he is the newest TOC member and end user representative for the, the technical oversight committee. So I'm very excited about having Dave here on this podcast. Um, Dave, do you want to? Yes, I'll go ahead. Thanks, Cheryl. And yeah, I'm very excited to both be here and to be on the TOC now. Uh, I wanted to follow up actually, Ricardo, because we just talked a little bit about the data side. And I'm really curious on the runtime side of this. I've heard from previous talks of yours that you run on Kubernetes, but can you talk a little more about that runtime environment? Uh, what other things you use there, like OpenStack or any other technology that you use either alongside or on top of Kubernetes for all this data? Yeah, so we we have uh, our own private cloud on-premises, and this is uh, this was the is in production since 2013, and it's managed by OpenStack. Uh, what we've done is uh, we deploy. For, for a few years now, we deploy our Kubernetes clusters on top of OpenStack. Uh, this allows us to, to have an experience that is very similar to what uh, public clouds also offer uh, by just integrating with the cloud provider uh, to be able to do things like cluster auto-scaling or uh, uh, integrating with the storage system. So over the years, we did all the integration on OpenStack with our internal identity, storage systems, um, and all the rest of the infrastructure uh, by Deploying Kubernetes on top, uh, we, we can rely on cloud provider to, to easily uh, make the best use of the existing uh, resources. What we what we offer our, inter our users is very much uh, an experience of Kubernetes as a service. They're able to, to come out and use our CLIs and APIs to create clusters. They can say uh, what kind of cluster, if it's multi-master, what kind of flavors they have for, for the masters and the, and the nodes. And they can do the usual operations of scaling uh, up and down their clusters. Uh, so it's it's a very similar experience to what the public clouds are are offering. I gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And can you talk a little bit about what's actually running in those workloads on Kubernetes? I mean, is this completely custom code or using some standard MapReduce frameworks or something like that to process the data? Yeah. So uh, th the main use case we have is what we call batch. Uh, this is uh, um, uh, physics workloads are often uh, described as embarrassing parallel, which means we can easily break them into a lot of uh, like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of uh, jobs that permit, uh, process pieces of data, but they are totally independent. They don't need to communicate uh, with each other. So for this ma for this main workload, um, we we don't need uh, uh, any specific uh, framework for this. We we have. Uh, uh, HD Condor as our batch farm, and we just uh, uh, deploy using HD Condor the, the jobs uh, that need to process the data. And there are several like steps in the data data processing. Uh, 
Um, we do have, um, for example, a, a Hadoop um, uh, clusters uh, where we do more uh, data analysis, more detailed data analysis uh, uh, that is not necessarily this core batch use case. And uh, since maybe two years, we also offer also called Hadoop as a service, which is that we have a central Hadoop cluster that is maintained by the Hadoop team, but people can also come and say, I need my own Hadoop cluster, and this will run on Kubernetes as well. Um, we do this with other services. Uh, we, the internal campus services, they're also being transitioned. A lot, a lot of them have already transitioned to Kubernetes, and this is running uh, uh, Tomcat applications, and this is things like uh, all the administrative uh, uh, services that are needed to run a campus that has more than 10,000 people every day on site, or the pension fund, or like pretty critical services. Uh, so it's kind of everywhere. The most exciting ones are more related to the physics data, and there it's a dispatch use case. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That sounds really interesting. But uh, I'll, I'll let us move on from this and hand over to Alex. Yeah, that's part of the story that I wasn't even thinking about, really, is that actually CERN is a very large organization and that with 10,000 employees and, you know, and pensions and everything else, that becomes a, you know, a major workload to manage in itself. So when when we're thinking about um, deploying Kubernetes, uh, I know that from past reading that you've used Helm. I'm curious if you've moved to Helm 3 and what you learned in that. And are you planning to use Helm as far as you can tell from, you know, as you evolve? And uh, what are you looking for? What do you want to see from it? Definitely. So we've been using Helm for quite a while now. Uh, we put a lot of effort in dissemination uh, and training internally to, to have people uh, migrate their workloads to Helm. Uh, the, the main reason was that when, when you first, uh, when we had people being first introduced to Kubernetes, uh, it's very tempting just to get things running, uh, but uh, it, we needed more to make sure that things are maintainable. Uh, it's uh, nothing new uh, in this Kubernetes world. Uh, we already had these problems in the past. Helm came as a very good option. So we had significant adoption of Helm v2. We migrated to Helm v3 uh, most of the applications uh, just recently because of this ongoing discussion of, uh, about uh, uh, deprecation of Helm v2 and the, the repositories potentially uh, being uh, taken offline. We've been pushing people to do this. There's a lot of benefits, the main one being Tiller disappearing and being able to manage things uh, directly with Kubernetes RBAC policies. I would say that Helm is, uh, is used by at least 90% of our deployments, um, the ones that have this automation uh, integrated. In other cases, people are using something different. Uh, the main push we have today in Helm usage is to go one step further and make sure that we also use this uh, new model called KitOps that we are actually already used in the past with our puppet-based deployments, uh, which is to make sure that all the infrastructure is well-kept and versioned and uh, that uh, newcomers can can be introduced to the systems by looking at uh, this well-structured definitions uh, kept in Git and without having to uh, directly touch the clusters. So this is something we've been pushing for during this this year or the last, uh, yeah, last 12 months. Uh, we use tools like Flux and also Argo CD. Uh, this is one, one big, this is the next step in our Helm path, I, I would say. So Helm will continue. Now you're just looking to evolve it through GitOps. Yeah, I see a, a lot of uh, 
growth. Like most of the new applications, when people come to us, we have tutorials and uh, internal trainings uh, that we can pass them. And the goal is to to make sure that they use Helm or if they don't, that they have a valid reason to, to try something different. Hmm, GitOps, Cheryl. We are hearing a lot of talk about GitOps. I think we talked about it a bit. And I see Dave smiling a little bit for I can see him here through the microphone. Actually, we're on video with each other, so we can actually see each other. But Cheryl, this GitOps story doesn't, doesn't quit. <laughs> no, I mean, I think GitOps is the way forward for most companies Maybe that's a bit too bold of a statement to say, but it's definitely a trend. More and more companies are adopting GitOps as a model. But it's not all that, is it, Dave? It's not all just like, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, I imagine Spotify uses Git, GitOps to some extent. You know, what question would you ask to Ricardo, um, either one of you, about, about GitOps going forward and, and how it affects kind of the overall architecture? Because I know there's a lot of challenges too that come with it. I think for us, we've been heavily moving to GitOps as the, our overall model for working with architecture. We found a lot of benefits, but I think the thing I'd really love to know from Ricardo is more of the details of what sort of changes they're making to move to more of a GitOps model. And aside from Argo and Flux, what kind of tooling are they having to put in place to actually make that be the operating model instead of, I don't know, whatever they were doing before, whether it was ClickOps or any other kind of systems they had in place? Yeah. So we we also have deployments that are using integration. We Internally, we use GitLab. There's also use cases where people are triggering deployments based on uh, Git uh, events. Uh, with a commit or a tag or something uh, to try to, to automate the deployment as well. It's really uh, the, the main benefit here uh, is that we, we were already doing this. Uh, we had a lot of experience managing uh, Puppet manifests and modules using Git and using not only to track the modules, but also the actual configurations for the services. And uh, the main challenge with Kubernetes has been this transition from like a, a VM or physical world to to a containerized Kubernetes world where things are very different. What what the management via Git uh, is offering us is uh, is uh, someone that is used to managing things like Puppet via Git. They can transition to managing like Helm values uh, using Git and not have to necessarily directly uh, understand all the details of how Kubernetes works. The challenge is then for, for managing like to the tools of Flux in a lot of cases is managing the tools themselves. Uh, they're pretty good at managing the applications, uh, but like upgrading themselves. Uh, Argo CD, I, I have less experience with Argo CD, but it seems to do a better job at this. Uh, but uh, I've been using mostly Flux, uh, but we do have users uh, using Argo CD as well. Uh, the other challenge is uh, properly managing multi-cluster applications. So it's quite easy to to like add a Flux deployment to multiple clusters coming from the same configuration, but it 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 poses a challenge in terms of distribution of the load, what goes where, uh, how exactly do we manage uh, multi multiple clusters? I think it's the main challenge today. We try to to promote this idea of uh, deploying applications in multiple clusters, but it's not always obvious how you manage this uh, uh, with these tools today. Can you tell me a little bit more about your multi-cluster setup, Ricardo? What do you expect your developers to do? And Yes, so this is, a, I would say, an evolving story. <laughs> it's been evolving for many years now in our setups. Uh, we keep uh, moving. 
into different models. But um, so one, one thing we learned from, from the early days of Kubernetes is that upgrades were not that easy. So we promoted this idea of multi-clusters and also having a way to, um, if you're running a service, to have a higher level load balancer that would kind of distribute the workloads across different clusters. This, this makes it very flexible to do uh, upgrades just by deploying new clusters and moving the capacity from one to the other, uh, and also like reduce the blast radius when something goes very wrong with one uh, of the clusters. Uh, so this is how we now try to convince people is to to rely on a top level load balancer that distributes the load uh, among multi cluster. What we also want is to have multi clusters to scale. So for the batch workloads, we, we, we plan to have very large amount of, of nodes serving this, these jobs. Um, so we will, we, we kind of partition the clusters, uh, to, to scale to this level. Uh, but in that case, it's kind of easier because we have a centralized scheduler that is able to submit to multiple clusters. So the challenge is really on the services. And the way we do this is, uh, we try to convince people to have clusters as cattle. As uh, following the previous notion of uh, virtual machines uh, as cattle, uh, so that if something dies, they can very quickly uh, deploy a new cluster, and if they use Helm and GitOps, they can just with uh, you know a couple of minutes they can have their application back up and running. Can you give an idea for people who are listening what kind of scale you're talking about? Like how big are your clusters? How many clusters you have? Yeah, so we have, I think, 570 clusters. Some of these are quite small because we offer this cluster as a service. So a lot of experimental uh, clusters where people just try things out. And then we have uh, a significant number of uh, production clusters. Uh, we initially tried to go to quite big clusters on the thousands of nodes. But I know I know other deployments have managed to do this. Uh, we had trouble initially, so... We got used to to being less ambitious on the side size of the cluster, so we we keep them on the couple of hundred max, and we partition uh, the clusters at this level. And I've I've discussing with other end users, uh, it, it seems to be kind of a common practice as well uh, to 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 do it like this. Multi clusters, and I imagine your clusters will only increase as you start to see this 10 time increase in data. And it brings questions for me about Prometheus. I know you use Prometheus, and it's imagine there's other monitoring tools you also use. Dave, I'm curious on your perspectives on Prometheus and and how what what would you want to know about going forward? And what would you want to know about the needs currently? Personally, I'm really interested in how they monitor this whole setup altogether. I mean, first of all, just how they use Prometheus, how they kind of aggregate data across all of these clusters through Prometheus and how well that's all working for them. And then the same kind of thing I asked before about Kubernetes of what other tools have they found that they need in this space where it isn't just about the runtime environments they talked about plus Prometheus to really understand what's going on. Yeah, so... The, by default, every cluster will have Prometheus integrated at CERN, and we monitor like, the standard inf uh, cluster metrics, uh, and people can also add their custom metrics. So it's pretty standard Prometheus-based deployment. What we do is also, we have two levels of monitoring. One is the in-cluster monitoring that basically allows you to, to do very detailed uh, debugging for 
things that are quite recent. And we have pretty high granularity for the metrics in these cases, but we have a retention rate of usually something like two weeks. Uh, people can tune this, but by default, it would be something like two weeks. And then what we also do is we have a central instance uh, that will basically pull the different clusters. Uh, if you want your metrics from your cluster to be also sent to the central instance, you can just add a flag and this central uh, instance will, will uh, aggregate metrics from your cluster. And here we have a lower granularity for, for the metrics, but the metrics are kept forever. This is quite useful when you have multi-cluster deployments because you want to do some statistics, uh, global statistics about your service. But it's also quite uh, interesting when you have hybrid uh, deployments between Kubernetes and virtual machines. If you're, for example, transitioning from your old infrastructure to Kubernetes, this allows you to uh, merge metrics in the same place from both the Kubernetes world and the virtual machine world and do some kind of correlation. Uh, so there's some tooling, some plumbing we do there uh, because we already had our old monitoring infrastructure and we wanted to integrate with that. Uh, so the way this works is um, it, there's two, two ways. You can either push the metrics to, to this endpoint, central endpoint, or you can just configure uh, the central endpoint to pull the Prometheus data. Uh, both are possible, but one one aspect is that we in in this new Kubernetes world, everything seems to be Prometheus in our infrastructure. But actually, the core storage for the central uh, metrics is still using InfluxDB. So we kind of have a hybrid monitoring infrastructure, I would say, uh, these days. Yeah, I think it's pretty standard. Uh, we we had the chance to try something from scratch uh, for for this uh, new new Prometheus de deployments. Uh, so it's it's kind of pretty standard. There's there's not too much uh, too much added there. Cool. No, I think that makes sense. So then, what are you, your kind of future hopes for this monitoring stack? What sort of things are you hoping to see out of Prometheus, or maybe you're tracking some projects like Cortex or Thanos or something that's kind of Prometheus adjacent? Yeah. So I think the 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 part that does kind of the federation of the multiple clusters is the one that uh, will probably evolve the most. Um, I'm actually not directly involved. Uh, I was involved in the integration of the, of the clusters with, with this infrastructure. Uh, but I think that part will evolve quite a bit. Uh, the way we, we register these clusters in this uh, uh, federated instance will probably change in the, in the near future. And also like the, the amount of data that we can store there is something that we also have to explore a bit more because uh, people can actually tune the, the, this rates of aggregation. Um, so we, we need to, to make sure that we can scale to, for what's coming next. And then, yeah, I think from, from the monitoring side, uh, that, that's pretty much it. There's a lot of talk about observability as well, uh, but it's uh, it's not something that we started looking right now. But I think this will be a big thing coming in the next couple of years. I gotcha, yeah. So we should definitely talk about observability sometime in, in the future as you guys evolve that. But I'll, I'll leave you alone on that topic for now. Yeah, I would be very interested in listening about it as well. It's not, it's not something we've been focusing too much on yet. Cool. All right. Let me hand back to Alex then. That, that's really interesting uh, about, uh, about InfluxDB and, and Prometheus. But essentially, kind of, I see kind of a, you know, an observation that you're using uh, time series databases, really, and how critical those time series databases really will be. Uh, for you uh, going forward. Um, another question I have, uh, you know, for you is I know that you, you're using core DNS and the network is of such interest to me uh, as of late, you know, and how it's, uh, and how it's transforming 
we're seeing kind of this integration of hardware more directly into uh, you know into the software itself. I wrote a story that I published yesterday about Smartnix and uh, how they're really I think going to really have people start to think a little bit differently about service mesh technologies, for instance. And so, you know, I'm curious on core DNS and, you know, and how you're using it today and what is the evolution for core DNS, especially as you're considering, you know, what you're talking about for um, how the infrastructure is going to really have to evolve. I think the the networking part is kind of special at CERN, I would say. Traditionally, we had we have pretty much a flat network. Uh, we don't really do much isolation between the different uh, tenants uh, that run in our uh, infrastructure. Uh, we do segmentation of the network uh, for scalability with different broadcast domains, layer two segments. But uh, but from layer three, it's pretty much one flat space. Uh, so it's kind of special in this way. Then, of course, we have for each uh, Kubernetes cluster, we have an overlay network, but it's uh, it's pretty much uh, isolated right now for, for that cluster. Um, and it runs on top of this uh, flat network. Regarding, and this is kind of the same for the DNS infrastructure as well. It's, it's centralized and, and managed by a dedicated team. And because we have a production infrastructure with a very large and expensive machine running, the network is always very uh, a very critical component and very hard to to change to do dramatic changes. So this is happening slowly. We do have a new region that has uh, software-defined networks where we can experiment with this uh, um, new things. But uh, but for the core, we we are still quite uh, quite um, like traditional in the network deployment. Regarding core DNS, uh, this is one component that we talked about quite a bit at the start because we had some issues uh, making it scale to the amount of requests we would have inside the cluster. But uh, we got to a point where um, it basically auto-scales to the amount of instances we need, and it basically disappeared. Uh, It's not not a a subject uh, we ever touch any longer. Which is a good sign. Um, so, I, I I recently asked a couple of my colleagues if there was something that that we could do um, or ask uh, about the DNS part, and pretty much everyone agreed that this is uh, pretty stable. We don't we don't uh, really talk about it, which is a very good sign. I guess that is a good sign. I'd like to just uh, turn it over in conclusion, you know, to Dave for a last question. Then I want to hear from Cheryl. A little bit about the uh, the end user group itself, and just any last questions that she has. But uh, Dave, after you hear this about uh, you know about their ev- the evolution of of the CERN uh, infrastructure and architecture, what what are some of your kind of last thoughts that you'd like to ask Ricardo about? I think the biggest thing that I'm still very curious about is the the developer experience that they have uh, with Kubernetes. Like, how much do individuals across certain truly interact with this infrastructure, how transparent is it to them and what sort of tools do you have? Not so much for the operations teams, but like between the individual engineers that interact with the software running on those clusters and the clusters themselves. Yeah, I think the the this is one area where containers made a huge contribution uh, to our community. We, we have pretty significant split between the physicists that will often write the code that is doing the analysis of the data and then the people running the infrastructure, although there's kind of a, a, a typical transition from, from physicists to ending up also maintaining the infrastructure when we need help. 
but the 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 containerization is is where things have made uh, uh, our life much easier because physicists now it's pretty embedded in their in their uh, daily life that every code every piece of analysis they 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 develop there's a lot of push to containerize and once they 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 have this uh, this unit of deployment uh, all the systems from the experiments uh, are capable of processing uh, this. And this can be using Kubernetes, but it can also be uh, using other systems uh, 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 that handle containers. And one, one aspect of our infrastructure is that over the years we developed, we, we have a large data center on premises, but we, we have a much larger um, distributed infrastructure with more than 200 sites around the world. And we double our capacity with this. And uh, the fact that now we can just uh, uh, have physicists working independently and having a standard way to, to uh, make a, a single unit of deployment of their codes that they push somewhere and then the infrastructure people are able to take that and, and, and make it and process it anywhere in, in this infrastructure is a big, big change. Um, so I think this is... This is uh, like a huge contribution of containers to, to our daily life. Cheryl, I'm going to turn it over to you to, to take it out. Thank you, Alex. Both CERN and Spotify are actually members of the CNCF end user community. And Ricardo, you also chair the CNCF Reach Research User Group, which works on cloud native as it applies to scientific computing and large scale research. So, I'd love to know, actually, what are you looking forward to from the community? What things are you, how are you looking to get involved? And yeah. Yeah, I think the, the opportunity to be part of a, like a very large community that is being built around Kubernetes and cloud native is is uh, something very exciting for us because we can learn. We, we talk about big data, but actually there's there's other uh, people handling large amounts of data and, and request, uh, requiring a lot of computing power. So we we hope to to contribute, but also uh, uh, benefit from from this software being developed and from the, all the experiences. I think what we can bring into the community is some specific requirements from from the research uh, world, uh, which are more. Uh, things like submitting batch workloads. It's not something that the traditional IT um, infrastructure will will uh, focus so much. They will be more interested in scaling their services, making sure that they they stay up all the time. We we have decided this need to submit hundreds of thousands or millions of jobs to to these clusters. Uh, the other thing that we are very interesting interested, but is also uh, becoming more common now, is this idea of. Uh, making use of all the resources possible, which makes us very interested in these hybrid deployments where we can we can have our on-premises deployments, but integrate with whatever is possible uh, from public clouds, from other institutes, things like this. So this this kind of hybrid infrastructure is, is also very important. And, and the third one is um, as we look to, to the next um, uh, generation of our accelerators. It seems like of our particle accelerators, it seems like uh, computing accelerators might play a, a big role there. So GPUs and, and similar accelerators and also machine learning and all of this and making sure that all this tooling uh, integrates very well with this software and frameworks we are relying on is also something we, we will 
we look forward to, to collaborating and benefiting from it as well. Well, I want to thank everyone. Thanks for taking it out, Cheryl, with that last question. I just want to thank everyone for joining us. Uh, Ricardo Rocha with CERN. Thanks, Ricardo. I was very much and really interested in hearing how an organization like CERN is thinking about its architecture going forward, especially with the work that you do. Dave Zutsky, uh, thanks so much for joining us as a co-host for these next several shows on the New Stack Analyst, this end user series. And of course, Cheryl Hung. Cheryl, great job in asking uh, questions that I think are really relevant uh, to where we are right now and for really uh, building a develop, building a community of end users, which I really think are helpful to all when we're building out these complex distributed architectures. So thank you all for joining us and uh, we'll be back again soon. KubeCon, Cloud NativeCon conferences gather adopters and technologists to further the education and advancement of cloud native computing. The vendor neutral events feature domain experts and key maintainers behind popular projects like Kubernetes, Prometheus, Envoy, Core DNS, ContainerD, and more. Listen to more episodes of the Newstack Analysts at the newstack.io forward slash podcasts. Please rate and review us on iTunes, like us on YouTube, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.